About 30 years ago, a newspaper in Amsterdam ran a somewhat specific classified ad. House community Kolontai is looking for a woman in her 40s with a child who is five years old, the ad read. And my mom was a woman in her 40s with a child who was five years old. So it was kind of like, wow, this is the place. That's Irene Pereira. Today, she's a renowned designer living in New York City. 30 years ago, she and her mother answered the ad in the Dutch newspaper and moved in to Kolontai. With eight adults and four children living together under one roof, Kolontai is a great example of an intentional community. In fact, it was a self-governing community whose 12 unrelated individuals shared bills, meals, and responsibility for things like cleaning and choosing new residents. So it functioned not unlike a small government inside our house. Living at Kolontai would change Irene's life forever and eventually bring her to our attention. Welcome to Imagine, a podcast exploring the brave new world of shared living. I'm your host, James Clasper, and I'm the research lead at Space 10, a future living lab on a mission to design a better and more sustainable way of life. This is our final episode about well-being and design, about how the way we design the spaces we inhabit can make us happier. In this episode, we'll explore the rise of so-called co-living spaces and consider how to create intentional communities that appeal to the many people, not the few. I think they all assume when you say communal living that it's like free love, hippie, 70s, or like an Israeli kibbutz or something like that, uh, or like weird religious thing or homeschooling or... Uh, generally, people didn't have very positive associations with it. Irene's childhood home was named after Alexandra Kolontai, a pioneering feminist and Russian revolutionary, which can't have done much to dispel those mistaken beliefs about it. Irene lived at Kolontai until she was 17. It wasn't actually until I left to college that I realized it wasn't that normal. Or at least it's not abnormal, but it's unusual. Intentional communities such as Kolontai are still somewhat unusual. But here's the thing. They're on the rise, albeit with a shiny new name. Co-living technically is just three or more unrelated people living together. So in a very simple way, you could say, well, roommates are co-living, and maybe they are, but co-living also has a lot to do with intent. So it's the intent of living together communally. So though we all know what communal living is, um, co-living is really just a modern take on that. No kidding. Communal Living 2.0 isn't happening in the Danish countryside or the sleepy suburbs. It's exploding in big, expensive cities like Berlin and London, New York and San Francisco. And instead of organic composting and snow shoveling rotors, today's co-living spaces are more likely to have yoga classes and super-fast Wi-Fi, room cleaning and community managers. We work with DJs, live music bands, authors, 
speakers and we're always trying to think of new innovative ways. But there's another important distinction to make between the newer co-living spaces and the more traditional types of communal living. And it isn't their yen for mid-century modern furniture. Rather, co-living has become a billion-dollar industry, with private companies launching for-profit spaces and renting out what are effectively spiffed-up dorm rooms and high-end lifestyle services. The goal is to create a global network of places where people can live in community and it will transform their lives. Curious to understand this market better, Irene looked into many of these co-living spaces and gleaned some telling insights about their residents. The longest they tend to stay in their community is maybe a year. Very few stay beyond a year. Most stay less than a year. So the bounce rate, if you will, is much higher than in regular apartments. Irene's interest in co-living came when she reached the personal milestone a few years ago. You know, I, I had just turned 30, and I think it had, it had a lot to do with that. I think all of us who have turned 30 have had that moment when we're like, oh shit, we're 30, like, who am I? And For Irene, it meant trying to make sense of her unusual upbringing. Because I didn't know anybody else besides the children in my house who had grown up the way I did. So I didn't have anyone else to, you know, to sort of measure myself against. As a consequence, Irene made one shared house. I might have grown up in public housing on the outskirts of the city. Luckily, my mom came across a more promising option. A documentary about her childhood home, featuring interviews with her mother. And there was an, uh, an ad in the Groene Amsterdamer, which is... And uh, some of the original uh, residents of Kolontai. The online version of the documentary concluded with a short quiz asking viewers what kinds of things they would be willing to share in a house like Kolontai. And the reason I want to know that is because we now live in a society where it's becoming increasingly unsustainable. And I really maybe am a bit naive in that sense, but I really do believe that if we share more and we share our, we pull our resources more, not just financially, but also our capabilities and our time, I think all of us would be better off. The options included a few things I'm guessing most of us would be willing to share, like the internet or the common room, and quite a few which, well, many of us might not be so happy to share, like the shower, the toilet, the kitchen or groceries. But if you're ever feeling down about humanity in general, remember this simple statistic. Only 3% of people would be unwilling to share anything at all. The survey eventually landed Irene on Space 10's radar. To kickstart our exploration of shared living, we collaborated with her and her design partner Anton Repinen to launch a new and much longer survey called One Shared House 2030. Designed as an application form to a hypothetical co-living space opening in 2030, it sought to understand in detail what people would and would not want in an intentional community. We try to think about what all the other considerations are when you're living with other people. So for example, how big should your community be? Should it be four to 10 people or 50 plus people? To date, more than 13,000 people from 171 countries have taken the survey. And that question of Irene's, how big should a community be? Turns out, most people would want to live in tight-knit communities of four to 10 people. Now that's interesting, 
not least because very few, if any, of today's co-living spaces are designed with that size community in mind. In fact, most co-living spaces are much bigger. The world's largest co-living space is a 550-bed tower block in London called The Collective, and it's by no means the only one of its kind. That said, there was one particular group of respondents who said they'd prefer to live in a slightly larger community, couples with children. They'd want to be part of a community of 10 to 25 people, presumably to share the workload of looking after their kids. In any case, no one said they'd prefer to live with hundreds of other people. A quick caveat. One shared house 2030 isn't a scientific survey. It's a form of playful research designed to get people thinking about the future of living. It should be borne in mind, too, that the data is quantitative, not qualitative. In other words, we know the what, not the why. Still, the survey asked respondents to choose what kind of ownership model they'd like. That is, would they prefer to rent or to own a stake in their shared living community? Most, if not all, co-living facilities that we know of are run by a corporation and there's a management and you pay rent, you don't own anything there. Yet it turns out the majority of people would prefer to have a financial stake in their community rather than pay rent. So that's very different from the reality and the offerings in the market today. It's also different from the likes of Lang Ying and Mung Sogol, the precursors of today's co-living spaces, which we visited in the previous episode. And this isn't so much about the financial implications of renting or owning. That's about how it affects our mindset as residents. If I am forever paying rent to management, I don't feel a sense of responsibility to the community, to the other people, to the space. Um, I'm not accountable for anything. In other words, changing the ownership structure of co-living spaces, giving residents the option of ownership, could trigger a greater interest in the housing model and help foster more stable, less transient communities. I think we would start to see very different types of people interested in this type of living because now you have a stake in it. Remember, the majority of residents of today's co-living spaces stay for less than a year. However, regardless of whether you rent or own, there's little you can do about the biggest perceived downside to shared living. The potential lack of privacy. That's right. According to the survey, the primary concern about shared living isn't disagreeing with other residents or dealing with other people's mess, nor is it the lack of full autonomy over decisions that would affect your daily life. No, most residents said they'd worry most about the potential lack of privacy and that they'd want to make sure their private space was off limits to others when they weren't home. What this seems to suggest is that most people prefer to have clearly defined spaces. In other words, to strike a clear balance between my space, your space, and our space. And I wonder whether the increasing popularity of co-living can be explained, in part, by our apparent willingness to share ever more aspects of our lives. By the fact that we're living in an age in which the border between public and private space is increasingly blurred. The local cafe becomes our office or living room, while we share our homes with strangers on Airbnb. This is also an age in which we digitize so many aspects of our lives, in which we accept that data about what we do, eat or say, how we feel and where we go, is collected and shared by governments and corporations and who knows else. Perhaps that's why we want a physical space that's private, that's ours, a place quite simply to be alone. 
Remember though, pretty much the whole point of co-living is to live with other people. Having sufficient privacy and being able to escape from people is one thing. Living with the right people in the first place is another. According to the survey, the majority of respondents would want new house members to be selected by a community vote rather than by management, a leadership group or an algorithm. Apply to live in one of the new crop of co-living spaces, however, and chances are your application form will be scrutinized by a management board. Management determines whether or not they think the person is not suited necessarily for this group, but suited for communal living in general. And they have to send in an application, and then you at some point just get a person in your house that is now part of your community. It matters who gets to choose the potential new residents of a co-living space. And it's important that current residents have a say. After all, and this should really go without saying, they're the ones who have to live there. But there's another very good reason, and that's that the other residents of a co-living space are the very point of choosing to live there. Mess that up and, well, why bother? The One Shared House 2030 survey asked people what they thought would be the most attractive aspect of shared living, and they said it would be the social life, which, when you think about it, isn't all that surprising. Loneliness is also on the rise in this community and in this generation. So it's seen as a counter effort to, to feel less lonely. Indeed, though the data is complicated, studies seem to show that loneliness is prevalent throughout society, if not increasing. In fact, one recent study by the British Red Cross found that 9 million people in the UK, quote, often or always feel lonely. Whether it's on the rise or not, loneliness is certainly enough of a problem that public health experts and policymakers are beginning to address it. Earlier this year, for example, the British government even appointed a minister for loneliness. Ironically, she's said to be tackling the problem on her own. In this light, then, it's hardly surprising that people might find shared living attractive. We're living in the age of the individual, an era in which traditional sources of community from the labor union to the church, are in steady decline. An era in which the smartphone has replaced the bowling club as a source of entertainment and company. Perhaps more and more people just want to be part of a community, to be able to meet at the village well every day. For example, according to our survey, parents would prefer to live with other parents and their kids. You can imagine why. Not only would the parents be able to share the burden of childcare, and perhaps the occasional bottle of Chardonnay too. But their little terrors would be able to play with each other every day. And there's more to that than meets the eye. You see, Irene was curious to explore how her upbringing might have affected her development. And she soon stumbled across a number of psychological studies that compared children growing up in single family homes with those living in intentional communities. Because they're exposed to so many different types of adults with so many different types of interests and so many different types of skills, they become more adept and, and just generally more capable of doing a lot of random different things. Thinking back to her childhood at Kolontai, this rang especially true for Irene. We had a woman in our house who was great at fixing bikes, so I could fix bikes. I, we had someone in our house who was great with computers, so I became great at computers. There was someone in our house who had a massive uh, comedy collection, so I devoured that. And as well as spending lots of time with adults at Kolontai, 
Irene got to hang out with children who were either a couple of years older or a couple of years younger than her. And all of that leads to a greater social ease and a higher confidence in themselves. It doesn't really matter if the mother is single or if there's two parents around, doesn't really make much difference, but not having siblings makes a difference. That's Björn Grinder, the Norwegian biologist we met in the previous episode. In 2016, he published a major study examining the impact of household size on children's mental health. And the more siblings, the better. <laughs> the study followed about 100,000 children in Norway, and the results are pretty conclusive. Living with other children has a positive impact on a child's mental health. But Björn extends the logic of this beyond the nuclear family. Those other children, they don't have to be related. Indeed, the more time non-related children spend together, the better, he argues. Not just for the six, seven hours of daytime community care, but by being living together. Sound familiar? We saw something like that at Lang Ing, and it's perhaps what Grace Kim's children enjoy at their co-housing community in Seattle, or what Irene got at Kolontai. That said, a community is only as beneficial as it is stable. Luckily, I grew up in a community that was fairly stable, but I, there was one person in our house who left the house who I was very close to when I was about 12, and that was a very big heartbreak for me. And I, I, I felt that very deeply, and I, and I mourned that, I think, much deeper than my mother did, for example. According to Irene, the psychologist who observed children growing up in intentional communities deduced that people moving in and out of the community too frequently could have a negative effect on the children growing up there. On balance, though, Irene believes in the huge potential of intentional communities. And not community in this sort of abstract social media way, but proper actual community. I think it's, it's positive. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But it, I think the benefits far outweigh the, the negative sides of it. We began this season by asking how to design the spaces we inhabit to improve our well-being. Of course, if we're being honest, there are countless ways of answering that question. In the past couple of episodes, we've chosen to focus on just one of them, shared living. What we've learned is that shared living can foster a greater sense of belonging than we typically find in cities, towns, suburbs and villages. That the community it creates not only helps combat loneliness, social isolation and depression, but also makes people happier and healthier. Yet if intentional communities are going to appeal to the many people, we need to design them differently. That means making them not only more community-oriented and community-driven, but also more cross-generational and cross-cultural. And with many countries' populations getting older, it means designing co-living spaces that support healthy ageing. The only way to solve that is by having a very wide variety of co-living that you then have to figure out which one you fit into. This then is why Space 10 has started to explore shared living. We want to gather knowledge and data that can inform better decisions about these future living spaces. We want to see spaces that appeal to a broader spectrum of people than is drawn to co-living today. Spaces that foster community, encourage us to share resources, generate a greater sense of togetherness and belonging, and turn co-living from a fad into a future way of life. To get there, 
we believe we need to start asking ourselves some tough questions. Like how do we want to live in the future? Are we satisfied with what's available on the market? To live healthier and more fulfilling lives, are we willing to reimagine the spaces we inhabit? In short, we believe that shared living has a significant role to play in the future of the planet, and that it's crucial to take the many people into consideration before sketching the blueprint. You've been listening to Imagine, a podcast exploring the brave new world of shared living. If you go to our website, space10.io, or to our page on Apple Podcasts, you'll find show notes, including links to the topics we've discussed, plus some suggestions for further reading. And we've also got a new publication out. It's also called Imagine, and it's full of interviews and articles about this brave new world of shared living. So go check it out. This episode was produced by Space 10 in collaboration with Unsinkable Sam. The music is by Edmund Vickner. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it.